It's, uh, <coughs> it's a joke, a bad joke, but it's a joke amongst ministers sometimes that it would be a great job if it weren't for the people. Um, I, I, I can remember when I was training for ministry so very, very long time ago, being told by one of our lecturers that um, <coughs> to be, uh, this is the advice I was given, make sure you keep a professional distance from your people. I can't think of any worse advice to give a pastor than that. Uh, I wonder what Paul would think about that, because Paul was a people person, wasn't he? Uh, we just read, or Chris has just read Romans 16 for us, and it's, uh, it's full of people. Uh, you might be tempted to think perhaps that Romans 16 is a bit of a letdown. I mean, it's such a famous letter, the letter to the Romans, such a breathtaking letter full of such astonishing truths, and it ends in a list of names, like a page from a telephone directory. Seems to be a bit of an anticlimax, doesn't it? When if you're looking for um, baby names that are a little bit out of the ordinary, then uh, maybe it would be useful. There are 33 names, I think, in this chapter. If I counted right, boys and girls, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin names all jumbled up together. But this is more than just a list of names. It'd be easy to dismiss, it, to, to dismiss this chapter as... Um, some kind of a PS, you know, please pass on my regards to Auntie Vera and Uncle Stan. But that would be to miss the whole point. Emil Brunner calls this chapter one of the most instructive chapters in the New Testament. See, it's, it's, it's all too possible for us to, to think of church and to see church uh, in terms of organizations, programs, activities, structures, clergy, theology, and even buildings, and fail to see that at its heart, church is about people. It's to do with relationships. It, it really is a network of relationships. And, and that's, the, the, this, this chapter is a glorious reminder to us of that, isn't it? It's difficult to preach on a list of names, but there's, uh, there's a word, I think, that ties all these names together, uh, the whole chapter together, in fact. It's there in verse 25. It's not there in the English, but it's there in the Greek. Uh, and it's the word from which we get our word steroids. Sterizo is the Greek word. Uh, why do athletes take steroids? I know they shouldn't, but they do. Why do they do it? Well, they want to win. They want to build themselves up, bulk themselves up, make themselves strong, build muscle, give themselves stamina. And, and that's why Paul writes Romans. He says so right up front in, in chapter 1 and verse 11. He says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to sterizo, to, so to make you strong. That's in chapter 1, verse 11. But if you look at verse 25, it's the same word there right at the very end of the book when he commends them to him who is able to sterizo you, establish you, strengthen you in accordance with my gospel. That's the substance that's pumping through their blood. You see, if, they had a, if you did a, a blood test on these Roman Christians, then what you would find is that it's the gospel that was pumping through their veins. That's what was making them strong. And that's why Paul wrote Romans, so that, they would, he, he, so that he could inject the gospel into their bloodstream. So they, they would be clear on what, what the gospel is all about. By grace alone, by faith alone in Christ alone. 
And the purpose of that, of course, the reason he wants to sterizo, the reason he wants to strengthen this church is so that they will become his base for worldwide evangelism. So that, verse 26, all the Gentiles, all the nations might come to the obedience that comes from faith. So here, in this last chapter, and I know it's difficult in the afternoon, I had a really big lunch across the road there, the, 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 the most massive chips I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I was hardly able to finish them. But um, it's called, I think the place is called Chips, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, that's by the way. But it, it's difficult, isn't it, when you've had a big meal to, um, it's difficult to preach. It's like Spurgeon said, it's like pudding, preaching to pudding. <laughs> preaching in the afternoon after a big meal. It's even more difficult to listen, isn't it? And when you've got a list of names, it's going to be difficult to concentrate. But um, let, So let me just sum it up in three words, what this chapter is all about. Just three words. Uh, there are greetings, loads and loads of greetings, bucket loads of greetings in this chapter. But then there's a warning in the middle of the chapter, very serious warning that we need to take to heart. And then it ends with blessing, benediction. So let's look at it under those three headings, greetings, warning, and blessing. Look at the greetings, first of all. Uh, it's, and it's not just one bunch of Christians in Corinth sending greetings to another bunch of Christians in Rome. It is that. That's where Paul is. He's in Corinth. He's got some people with him. <coughs> and he's sending this letter uh, to the Christians in Rome. But it's more than that. You look, 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 look what it says in verse 16. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Just think about the significance of that. See, that's what Christians do. That's how churches should relate to each other. That's how they did relate to each other in the New Testament. As I think I said just this morning, then it's not independency, it's interdependency. All the churches of Christ send greetings to you in Rome. You see, their lives are intertwined. Here are real people living in real time in the real world in whom the gospel is at work. And what a remarkably diverse bunch of people they are, aren't they? Look, just look at the people with Paul in Corinth, for example, as he writes this letter there in, in verse 22. Um, there's a guy called Tertius who uh, kind of photobombs himself into the picture, doesn't he? He's the scribe. He's the guy who actually literally wrote the letter. Paul dictated it to him. And he wants a selfie, doesn't he, there in verse 22? He introduces himself there. And in verse 23, there's a guy called Quartus. Now, I know you don't do Latin in school anymore, but if you, if you did Latin, then you'd know that um, those are numbers, not names. It's number three slave and number four slave. And, and here they are with Erastus, who according to verse 23 is director of public works in the city of Corinth. That's a top job. That is someone. See what the gospel does? Whether it's in Rome, or Devonport, or Launceston, or Hobart, or wherever it is, it supernaturally brings people together who naturally wouldn't be seen dead in each other's company. That's what the gospel does. It transcends race. It breaks through social barriers. It spans the generation gap. It crosses racial divisions and gender differences. I, I don't, can you think of any, any other gathering where that happens. There isn't anywhere else where that happens. 
the, the world should look, as it were, through the window into our churches and see something that they can't explain. It, it's supernatural. What we're doing here is, is looking through the window into the church at Rome. And I hope we're at the same time catching a reflection, our own reflection in that window. So, so look, let's look into the, into the church at Rome. Look at verse 9. There's Urbanus there. Guess where he's from? Can't you see him with his skateboard? And his cap on back to front? Or, or maybe in a, in a designer suit talking into an iPhone? Urbanus, he's a city dweller. But then in the same verse and in the same church, you've got Stachis, whose name means year of corn. Guess where he's from? <laughs> you've got town and, county, town and country here, haven't you? And there are people in this list of names with royal blood connected to the imperial family. There are rich and poor, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, all united in Christ. Now, now Paul hasn't been to Rome yet. But he knows all of these people and he knows where he can find them. He knows where they are. They're in Christ and therefore they're in church. Because if you're in Christ, you'll be in church. One of my favorite, one of my favorite verses, which I find pastorally very, very helpful or have done over the years, is that verse in Acts 2 where it says, you know, it describes how they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and breaking of bread. And that's what a church is. It's not an institution. You know, the door's always open whether the people turn up or not. We just dispense the sacraments. That's an institution. That's not church. Church is being devoted to the apostles' doctrine and to fellowship and to prayer and the breaking of bread. And, and at the end of that description you've got there in Acts chapter 2, at the gospel is preached, this community is formed, and it says, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. See what that means? Who should be part of a church? Those who were being saved. A credible profession of faith. If God is not at work in that person's life, you shouldn't add that person to the membership of your church. But on the other hand, if you are being, sa if you are being saved, if God is at work, if God is converting you, it will end up in church. That will be the end of your conversion. You are not fully converted until you are part of this kind of a fellowship, do you see? You can't be strong as a Christian and grow in your faith unless you're actively involved in the life of a local church. But what will that look like? <coughs> Let me make just three general observations about this. Let me just pick out three things to say about all these people. We don't know a lot about most of them, but there, there are some words that describe, uh, describe them. Let me just pick out three. Uh, they are, I'll tell you what they are straight away. So they are hard workers. I think it's probably in the outline. They're risk takers and they're holy kissers. That's what we can say about these people. They're hard workers. Look at them. There's Phoebe in verses 1 and 2. She, she's the one that Paul has actually entrusted with this letter. Just imagine that. If, it, if she'd left that, her handbag somewhere with this letter in, you know, at some Hudson's coffee shop or something on the way to Rome, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be sitting here this afternoon. What a loss that would be, wouldn't it? Not to have the letter to the Romans. And Paul has given, her, given Phoebe this letter and entrusted her with this letter to, to, to bring to Rome. And he commends her, you notice, to them as a servant of the church um, in Kenchria. Now, Corinth was a notoriously uh, immoral place. It was known as Sin City. 
And, and Kenkria was the red light district of Sin City. Kenkria was uh, where all the bars and brothels were located. Do you mean to tell me there was a church in Kenkria? C.T. Studd would have been delighted, I'm sure. You remember what he says about church? Some like to sit within the sound of church or chapel bell. I'd rather run a rescue shop within a yard of hell, he said. That's Kenkria. And Phoebe was a servant of the church in Kenkria, a deaconess. Imagine what that meant. Ministering to prostitutes and drug addicts. Imagine the emotional wear and tear and, and the, the sleepless nights and the risks and dangers of that. That's Phoebe, a servant of the church in Cancria. And, and then there's Priscilla and Aquila in verse 3. If, if, if you read your Bible, you, you'll know, don't you, that uh, everywhere that they are mentioned in the Bible, there's a church meeting in their house. In Corinth, in Ephesus, and now in Rome. No, notice how he, he, he refers to them. He refers to them as my fellow workers. It's hard work having a church meeting in your house. Or a gospel community or a growth group every week, isn't it? It's hard work. Some of you will know that. And he mentions Mary in verse 6, who worked very hard for you. And Urbanus again in verse 9, our co-worker in Christ. And then in verse 12, <coughs> you meet <coughs> the twin sisters, Tryphena and Tryphosa, who worked like Trojans, apparently. Their names mean dainty and delicate, but they were hard workers. And Persis, another woman in verse 12, who's worked very hard in the Lord. Do you see the, the emphasis here? What a great epitaph this is. These are not just... The, the, these are just the people that Paul knows, and, and they're workers, not spectators. Someone has said that church is like a game of soccer, 22 men desperately in need of a rest, being watched by 76,000 desperately in need of exercise. <laughs> but that's not how it's meant to be. You know, but that's sad to say that's how it often is, isn't it? 80% of the work being done by 20% of the people. That's how it is in most churches. Look through the window into this church. What do you see? You see hard workers. But they're not only hard workers, they, they're risk-takers, aren't they? That's certainly true of Priscilla and Aquila. Look what it says in verse 4, they risk their necks for me. Oh, here's another interesting couple in verse 7, the Donicus and Junior. We don't absolutely know who they were. We, probably, we think they're probably a husband and wife. Some people like to suggest that Junior was a man. But uh, they're probably husband and wife, and they're probably a missionary couple because they're described as being uh, first amongst the apostles. Now, they're not apostles with capital A, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but they are sent out ones. That's what the word apostle means. So here's a, a, a couple that have been sent out by the church to minister, and Paul describes them as fellow Jews who've been in prison with me. And that's no fun, being in a Roman prison. Well, look what he says about Apelles in verse 10, a tried and trusted veteran whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. If we want to see new people reached with the gospel, it's going to be hard work, and it's going to mean all hands on deck, 
and we're going to have to stick our necks out and we're going to have to take risks. It's my observation after a long time in ministry and as being part of a church planting movement for part, most of that time that growing churches are always behind budget. Why? Because growing churches will always take risks. Not stupid risks. But that's why they're growing, you see. Look through the window and what do you see? You see hard workers, you see risk takers. And holy kissers. Better explain that one, I think. Look at verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. What's the difference between a holy kiss and an unholy kiss? About 10 seconds. <laughs> Somebody said that's right. <laughs> this was too much, of course, for the Englishman, uh, J.B. Phillips, who paraphrased this verse, greet one another with a warm handshake. <laughs> Very English, isn't it? <laughs> Here in Australia, of course, we greet one another by trading insults, don't we? The greater, in, the, greater the insult, the... Uh, the warmer the welcome. I remember when I first came, I went to a conference in Melbourne and um, it was at Glen Waverley in the Anglican Church there and I think where John Harrower used to be the, the, the pastor before he came over to be the bishop here. And uh, Don Carson was the speaker and uh, he was being introduced by Peter Adam. I don't know if you know Peter Adam. Uh, and anyway, uh, after he'd been introduced, um, he said, oh, you know, when you, I always know when I'm in Australia, I know, always know that I'm being warmly welcomed uh, by... When Philip Jensen w welcomes me, I, I feel welcome straight away because Philip Jensen's really quite insulting to people when he wants to be. <laughs> but he said, when Peter Adam welcomes me, it, it isn't until the day after that I realize <laughs> just how warmly welcome I am. <laughs> but that's how we welcome people, isn't it, in Australia? It's, it's a, a cultural way to do it. Not a warm, hand, you know, limpid, wet fish handshake, but um, an insult. <laughs> how are you, how are you, you old so-and-so? <laughs> that's how... Australians greet one another, isn't it? But, you see, I, I don't think Paul is simply saying that we're to greet one another in the culturally appropriate way, whatever it is, whether it's a holy kiss or a warm handshake or whatever. It's much more, it's, it, there's much more to it than that. See, this, this is much more than politeness. Who do you kiss? You kiss your siblings, don't you? You kiss your family, you kiss your mum, your dad, your grandma, you kiss your children. For a Jew to kiss a Gentile, that is unheard of. It would never have happened, not in a thousand years. And for a master to kiss a slave would have been scandalous. You see, this isn't just being polite. This is, this is revolutionary. This is an active, some, one writer put it like this, this is an active campaign to break down the barriers that society has put in place to keep us apart. The gospel smashes through all that. No superiority, no snobbishness in the church, no racism, no... The gospel brings us all together into the same family under the lordship of Christ. And so the whole passage is one of warmth, isn't it? Greet, 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 greet. 
It's more than a members list that we've got here. It's more than a computer readout, isn't it? Look at verse 13. Don't you love what Paul says there about Rufus's mum? You know who she is, don't you? She's the wife of Simon of Cyrene, the guy who carried Jesus' cross along the Via della Rosa. And now there she is in Rome, in the church in Rome. And Paul says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother. She's been like a mother to me. <laughs> she's taken in his washing. Cooked a meal, poor old bachelor, Paul. Or maybe his wife had left him when he became a Christian. He was a Pharisee, he was, could well have been married, and his family would have deserted him. And she's taken in his washing and cooked his favorite meal for him. Is that a ministry you could have in your church? To be a mother in Israel to young mums struggling to bring their children to church? Or a grandmother to overseas students? Or refugees? I don't know how many refugees there are in Tasmania, but certainly in Brisbane we had loads. Who were separated from their families? Could you be a grandmother? Remember what Jesus said to his followers? No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. That's your homes. That's you he's talking about. Look through the window. That's what do we see. That's what church is like. There's, there's lots to say we don't know about these people, but they've got guts, haven't they? And they've risked everything for the gospel. And they've got backbone. They're working hard to get the gospel out. And they've got heart. They're not only workers and warriors. They're warm and affectionate to one another, shaped by grace. And how did they get to be like that? Of course, it's the gospel. The go as Tim Keller keeps saying, the gospel is not only the, he's American, he keeps saying this, he, the gospel is not only the ABC, it's the A to Z. <laughs> the gospel isn't just the way in to the Christian life. It's, it's what, it's, it should be in our bloodstream as Christians. It's what motivates every action that we take, every decision we make, the gospel. That's the steroid that needs to be pumped into us. The gospel of God's grace. But now in the midst of all these greetings comes a jarring note. Look at verse 17, a warning. Greet, 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 yes, but there's something else here, isn't there? I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them. Paul's warning of stranger danger here. So sad, isn't it, that we have to warn our kids not to talk to strangers? You know, don't get into that car with someone you don't know. Be careful who you speak to online. There are predators out there prowling around, steer clear at all costs. And that's what Paul is saying here to the church in Rome. Greet, 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 greet. And now he says, shun. Avoid. Watch out for certain people. Keep away from them. These people are not to be welcomed with a holy kiss. 
These are people for whom we're not to have any affection. In fact, the exact opposite, the command is, keep away from them. There are certain people, you see, who are persona non grata. Why? Well, precisely because they are persona non grata. They're not grace people. They come with another gospel, a Jesus plus gospel, which is contrary to the teaching you've learned, literally, which is parallel to the teaching that you've learned. That's literally what it says. It's not that they deny the gospel outright. They bring something else alongside with it. Watch out for that, Paul is saying. It's not always easy to spot it. You know, these people come as wolves in sheep's clothing. They can appear as, as angels of light. Look what he says there. Keep away from them. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. And, and you see, there's a, there's a kind of ethical and moral dimension to false teaching. Do you notice that? Look at verse 8. Um, of 18, I mean, he says, I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Steer clear of these people, he says, who come along with a parallel gospel, something that's adding to the gospel. It's not what you've heard from me, he says. It's not faith alone in Christ alone. It's Christ plus something else. And he says that leads to this sort of thing. I want you to be wise about what's good and innocent about what's evil. You see, often it's the other way around, isn't it? We're so bedazzled by the world, we don't want to appear unsophisticated and unworldly to our non-Christian friends. So we have to watch what they watch. We have to go where they go. We have to see the movies that they like. And But you don't have to stick your head in the dustbin to know what's in there, do you? You can smell it a mile off. One look at the dust cover is enough. This is what Paul is saying. You don't have to read the book. He says, in understanding, be men. In evil, be babes. Be content to be regarded by the world as naive and unsophisticated and like a little baby when it comes to evil. But when it comes to understanding the gospel, grow up, he's saying. Be men. Watch out for those who try to put it around the other way. I think it's a very timely warning, isn't it? Beware of strangers. False teaching. And it's, it's so much more of a danger nowadays with access to online sermons and websites of churches. I know good Christian people, who I know are good Christian people, are listening to absolute rubbish online. Just because someone's a good communicator doesn't mean to say they're feeding you the word of God. And if you can't examine a person's life, if you, the person who's teaching you, if you don't know that person's life, you shouldn't be listening to what they're teaching you. There's a very big emphasis in the New Testament that teaches that you should be able to see the way they live as well as hear what they have to say in order to weigh up whether they're safe guides. Beware of strangers, he's saying. And, and when it comes to stranger danger, <coughs> attack is the best form of defense. You see what he says there in verse 20? He says, the God of peace, I love this verse, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I mean, why bring Satan into it? Because he's behind it. He's the father of, <coughs> father of lies. <coughs> he's the master of deception. Every deviation from the truth can be traced back to him. But you see, he won't get away, from, he won't get away with it. 
the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's a battle waging, raging for the, the redemption and renewal of the world. There's a battle raging for the souls of men and women. And the church is up against the powers of darkness. But the outcome is certain. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Remember that song that Nancy Sinatra used to sing? Looking around the room, I think most people remember Nancy Sinatra. Apart from a few guys at the back there. <laughs> these boots were made for walking. Remember that one? And that's what they're going to do one of these days. These boots are going to walk all over you. I think um, <clears throat> Paul is reminding these Christians in Rome that Satan is a defeated foe. And he's telling them to put on their gospel boots. And he's quoting from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which the theologians call the Proto-Evangelium, the first announcement of the gospel. And you know when the gospel was first preached, who it was preached to? <laughs> it was preached to Satan. And guess what? It wasn't good news for Satan. Because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you remember what, what is promised? That the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. <laughs> That's the first time the gospel was preached, after the fall, in the garden. That out of the human race, some woman's son, the woman's son, would come and crush the head of the serpent, turn the tables on evil, reverse the curse, undo the fall. Remember the Genesis 3? He will bruise, the serpent will bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. And that promise, of course, is gloriously fulfilled at the cross where Jesus dealt the death blow to the devil and with the bruised heel of his crucified humanity, he stomped on Satan's head, didn't he? Just when Satan thought he got him, just when Satan thought, well, it's all over and done with now, nipped at his heel, that's all he did. And with the bruised heel of his crucified humanity, Jesus stomped on Satan's head. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? Powerful. And now by the preaching of the gospel, Satan is cast out. And his empire is pushed back. And his captives are set free. <laughs> so put on your gospel boots, Paul is saying. <clears throat> Resist the devil. Don't be intimidated by him or his henchmen. Preach the gospel. Say to Satan, these boots were made for walking and that's what they're going to do. This gospel of the kingdom must first be preached in all the world and then the end will come. These boots were made for walking and that's what they're going to do. One of these days, these gospel boots are going to stomp all over you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Wow. See, he can't win. He's on a hiding to nothing. So Paul is saying, hang in there. Yeah, it's going to be tough, but the victory is yours. You're not fighting for victory. You're fighting from victory, aren't you? And that leads me then to the third thing you see in the chapter. Greetings, warning, and blessing. See how it ends? Verse 25 reaches a climax, like a great symphony with all the major themes of Romans that are woven together again to reach this, this crescendo at the end of the chapter. 
and theology becomes doxology. And Paul snatches the pen from Tertius, the scribe, and he probably writes these words in his own hand. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles, all the nations might come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the right note to end on, isn't it? See, many people, um, many people rightly recognize Johann Sebastian Bach as one of the greatest composers in history, a genius who, um, who wrote brilliant pieces of music with an ease unparalleled even by Mozart. He was the rock star of his days. <laughs> what, what many people don't realize, he was a Christian. And a lot of what he wrote, he wrote actually for churches. He was commissioned to write church music. And, and apparently on, on many of his original compositions, you will find at the top one set of initials and at the bottom another set of initials. And the initials at the top are, I think it's JJ for Jesu, Juva, Jesus, help. That's how he started composing. Asking Jesus for help in writing music that would honor and serve and glorify him. And then at the end of the composition are those words, those very well familiar words, S letters SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. That's the way to begin and end your Christian life, isn't it? It's a, it's a good way to begin and end a ministry. It's a, good, it's a good way to begin and end any day for that matter. Jesus, help me. And to God alone be the glory. It's a good way to do church together, isn't it? Relying on the grace of God and seeking to bring glory to God, not to ourselves. And how do we do that? How is God glorified? Well, he tells us, doesn't he, it's when all nations believe and obey him. And how's that going to happen? It's through the proclamation of the gospel. So put on your gospel boots. Put on your gospel boots and get out there. And to God alone be the glory. Amen.